right. Hey, it's great to see all of you. Hope you're having a great weekend and a great Sunday. And as Melissa just said, if you're a guest with us, we're especially glad that you're here. Um, we're in the second part of a series called Stuck, as you just saw. And uh, if you missed last week, we're looking at some of the common ruts that we sort of find ourselves in as Christians, as we are striving to follow Jesus. We, we get stuck from time to time. And so this morning, we're asking ourselves this question very simply, how do we get unstuck? How do we get unstuck? How, uh, how can we gain traction? How can we break free from some of these ruts that we get into and some of these things that we deal with and get distracted by? And um, so oh, also, too, every week, each of these three weeks, we're looking at a different Old Testament character, which maybe you didn't know. I don't know that Jeff said that last week. But um, if you missed it last week in week one, Jeff looked at the, the Old Testament story of King David and Bathsheba. And whether you grew up going to church or not, you've most likely heard of that story. And it's a great story. But if last week the scenario was this. Last week, the scenario was, um, what do you do when you get stuck because of something you've done? What do you do when you get stuck because of sort of a poor choice you made, um, but it's been some, it was something you did? If that was the scenario last week, then this week, the scenario is this. What do you do when you feel stuck, not because of something you've done, but because of who you are? That there's sort of this war going on inside of you. Like you go, what do, what do you mean by that? I mean this, you feel inadequate or you feel ill-equipped, or you lack confidence, or you're filled with uh, doubts, or fear, or insecurities, or angst. Maybe it's anger, but you, the war is sort of within you. It's not something maybe you've done, but it's, it's sort of within you. And have you ever looked at yourself in the mirror, or, uh, or just had the thought run through your mind, like, what is the matter with me? I mean, you sort of, we, we encounter these external situations, but maybe the external situation isn't so bad, but inside we sort of go, what is the, like, did I just think that, really? Did I just say that? You know, my mother-in-law really is a good person, but in my mind, when I think of her, something just is triggered, right? Or we say something to our kid, or just these thoughts that we have. Or maybe it's this, um, maybe you recently started a new job, and uh, overwhelmed would be sort of an understatement. You were like, you were beyond overwhelmed in this new job. You thought you were qualified for the job. You went hard for this job and you got it. But now you're like, this is, this is way more than I thought it would be. I feel buried. I feel stuck. And you want out. You want to throw in the towel. Or maybe it's your job, but it's not a new job. Maybe you've been there five years, seven years, 20 years. And you sort of go, I don't feel overwhelmed. You just go, I feel uh, bored. I'm not motivated to come to work in the morning. I don't feel like I accomplish anything. And you go, I'm 50, I'm 55. There's no chance for me to try something else at this point. Maybe it's work-related. Maybe it's more personal. Maybe you just feel like there's this angst in you on like, God, I thought, I thought life would be different than this by this point. Where you go, God, I, I thought you had something better for me. And maybe you think back, if you're married, you think back to when you first met your spouse. You go, we were going to do this and this, and this. We, were, we had plans. We had dreams. You think back to college, and you go, I was going to do some of that stuff. I was going to try, I don't know, whatever it is. And time has passed, and now you have a family, and you go, this is just not what I thought it would be. But we feel this angst. There's this stuff within us. And again, external things bring that out of us, but the problem is sort of within, which is different than last week. And so this week, we're going to look at, an, at an, an individual in the Bible who you have all heard of. I mean, this guy is famous in the Bible, one of the most famous people in the entire Bible. But up until a certain point in his life, this person was plagued with anxiety, insecurities. He felt, um, he felt incompetent, 
for the task that God had to him. And he didn't, he didn't encounter this stuff until later on in life. But he became a bedrock pillar of, of Judaism first and then of Christianity. And, uh, and at a certain point, here's why, he got unstuck because he realized that God is sufficient even when we're insufficient. That God's power is adequate to cover, to cover all of our inadequacies. It is. And when we encounter him, it's crazy and it's great and it's exhilarating. So if you have a Bible or if you have a Bible app, if you have a smartphone or a tablet, would you grab that? I want you to pull it out with me. I'd love for you to follow along. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, starting at verse 1. This is the passage I'm going to be in this morning. Exodus 3, 1 through 14. And then uh, the second, or, I'm sorry, the first half of chapter 4 as well. Um, we talking about in Moses uh, in Exodus we're talking about Moses right and in chapter 3 we come to Moses and the account of the burning bush when God speaks to him through the burning bush a very very well-known passage and before we dive into this I want you to see in Moses what I just mentioned to you that Moses at this point he feels inadequate he feels ungifted he rattles off excuse after excuse I want you to be on the lookout for that in a phrase you could say that Moses was really sort of stuck on himself. And there's nothing wrong with a little introspection, but so often we, all of us, all of us at some point or another, we do the same thing. We get stuck, we get fixated upon ourselves, and most of the time, our insecurities. We feel inadequate. And, uh, and again, this is not because of something we've done, but because of who we are. I want to give you this quote. Um, uh, here's why this is so important for you and for me. One of my favorite authors, theologians, is this guy named Dallas Willard. And um, Dallas died just a few years ago, but he made this comment in one of his writings. He says this, says, the most important thing in your life is not what you do. It's who you become. He says, that is what you will take into eternity. The most important thing in your life is not what you do. It's who you become. He says, that is what you'll take into eternity. Now, that's not scripture. That's maybe his opinion, but I think he's pretty on point there. And I, I love to chew on that kind of stuff. You go, huh, yeah, who, what kind of person am I becoming? Who am I? And who am I on the inside? Now, so four things. So back to Exodus chapter 3. Four things in this passage, in Exodus 3 and 4, four things in this passage that Moses needed and that we need in order to get unstuck from focusing too much on ourselves and our inadequacies. Four things are this. First of all, a pivotal experience Secondly, a proper perspective. Thirdly, we need a powerful master to get unstuck. And fourthly, we need a personal companion. So I'm going to look at each one of these. All right, so first, a pivotal experience. A pivotal experience. What's the first thing that Moses came across that took his attention off of himself? Well, at the beginning of chapter 3, it's the burning bush itself. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. You can follow along. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight while the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. So this is the context, right? Moses is out tending the sheep. He's in the desert. I'm speculating here, but I'm guessing this was probably not Moses' first week or first day on the job. And um, probably from time to time, you might come across a brush fire. And Moses 
I would think, might have seen this, first of all, as a brush fire sort of off in the distance. I'm sure he'd, I'm sure he'd seen brush fires before. Uh, I'm guessing they could happen from time to time. I don't know, maybe a lightning strike, maybe another shepherd just left a, a fire going or something. They're probably you know, around there, and you don't waste water, like putting out your campfires back in that time period. But he's out in the desert, and he's particularly, it says, by this mountain, he's in the mountainous desert. And so any brush fire would go out rather quickly, wouldn't it? So if he'd seen this before, I'm sure a fire would maybe start, but it would go out rather quickly. Why? Because in the desert, there's no fuel, right? There's no fuel. There's nothing to really keep a fire going, not in this sort of desert. But evidently, Moses saw this, this fire. It kept burning and burning and burning. And Moses goes, what in the world? That doesn't, that doesn't happen out here in the desert. And so the text says in verse 3, it says, Moses thought, I will go over. I will go over and see this strange sight. Now, two times that phrase is used. It's used again in verse 4. God, the Lord saw that he had gone over. But the Hebrew word used here, it's just a single, uh, singular word. It's one word. And uh, it actually means to turn aside or to detour, to take a detour. If you uh, use maybe the ESV translation, it actually says Moses turned aside. But I think that's significant because what am I getting at? See, God was trying to get Moses' attention, and I don't know why God does what he does, and I shouldn't question that, but I would think God, maybe, if he wants to get our attention, or if he did for Moses, he would have just come down sort of right in front of Moses or sent an angel if he needed to do that and just would have said, hey, this is what's going to happen. I'm God, and I'm huge, and whatever, this is, this is what's going to happen. It comes down right in front of us. But um, he didn't do that. He could have done that, but that's not how God always operates. In fact, that's not how God normally operates. God uses a flaming bush of all things, and it wasn't even in Moses' path. It apparently was sort of off to the side, off the beaten path. And Moses went to see this strange sight. This was a pivotal experience for Moses, obviously. This rocked his view of reality. Bushes don't keep burning like this. Either the bush remains intact because it's not on fire, or it's on fire and it's consumed, but a bush doesn't start on fire and then just remain intact and keep burning. So what's going on? This was a pivotal experience. This was a paradigm shift. And Moses thought, this is not how reality works. And this, folks, in so many cases, is exactly how God likes to get our attention, it seems. C.S. Lewis, in his classic, classic fiction book, The, the Screwtape Letters, we find sort of a senior devil um, writing letters to a junior devil. It's his nephew. And um, the senior devil's name is Screwtape. And uh, he's sort of, I guess, in retirement or something in hell. It's an intriguing book. Um, if you've never read it, you should look into it. But he's giving advice to his nephew. And he writes this, Screwtape. Again, he's speaking to his nephew. He says, your business, he's talking about um, tempting people, by the way. So his nephew's still sort of out on the tempting field. Your business, he says, is to fix his attention on the stream of immediate sense experiences. Teach him to call it real life and don't let him ask what he means by real. Remember, he is not like you, a pure spirit. Never having been a human, you don't realize how enslaved they are to the pressure of the ordinary. The pressure of the ordinary. We are so busy. We are so fixated. And again, I'm not saying life, life is not always an adventure. We are caught up in the ordinary th stuff of life. But so often, we're so, we feel pressure to these ordinary experiences. Are you stuck on yourself? Are you worrying about this and that in life, some of the ordinary pressures of life? Are you riddled with anxiety or fear about the, about the future? How's God trying to get your attention? 
how's God trying to, to speak to you? I, I bet he's trying to get your attention one way or another. And you go, oh, does God still speak? I do think God still speaks. And the word of God is always the foundation and the filter for those things. But how is God trying to get your attention right now? He's not going to come down right in front of you and just tell you what he wants probably. He's going to make you turn off to the side or you need to notice something. You need to come across a pivotal experience. Have you had that yet? And there's many of them throughout life. For many of you, your first maybe, your first pivotal experience was perhaps when you were a kid, you were much younger. It was at summer camp for a lot of us, right? You went to summer camp and there was this experience at some point in summer camp. It was a campfire experience late at night. But man, that was when God just grabbed a hold of your life, rocked you. For a lot of you students in here, you'd say it was a fall retreat you went on with Brookside. For many of you, it's in middle school. And so, man, when you get baptized, I hear these testimonies every year. You mentioned when I went on that tribe fall retreat, I don't know what it was, but God just, it was a pivotal experience for me. And God gra- grabbed a hold of my life. Our, that's our prayer right now for track camp. This is the second weekend of track camp going on, a camp for foster, foster kids in Nebraska. And this is the boys weekend. There's some great volunteers and some great kids at this camp out in western Nebraska. And they're coming home tonight, and I pray that they had pivotal, pivotal experiences. For some of us, um, it was something bad. It was a tragedy. Maybe it was a, a death of a loved one. My best friend in high school, Chris Gehring, that's what it was for him. A cousin that he was very, very close to was killed in this tragic car accident when Chris was in middle school. And for whatever reason, that sort of shook him. And it wasn't a good situation, but God used that in his life. And that's when he started walking with the Lord. He got really serious about his faith. And I didn't meet Chris until high school, but he told me about that later. Most of the time, it's a pivotal event. Sometimes it's a pivotal person. Have you ever met this person? Maybe someone in your life, maybe that's the reason you're here today is because you met someone or a friend of yours just uh, continued to sort of talk to you about God. Maybe you married that person and maybe they're the ones that got you to come to church or maybe it's just this, maybe it's an emptiness that God uses even, even something like a feeling of emptiness, a prolonged void. You, you just know that There's more to life than this. You maybe have everything you thought you'd ever wanted, but it still doesn't satisfy. And so it can even be a train of thought or a lasting emptiness. It's a pivotal experience. And I tell you what, even if it's happened before when you were a kid or something, that stuff can still happen now. I bet God's trying to get your attention. And you know what? If Moses had been too busy, if Moses would have thought, ah, it's off the beaten path, it's just another brush fire, I gotta get the flock home by eight, I mean, it's late, If Moses wouldn't have gone over to see this bush, we never would have heard of Moses. Never would have heard of him. We're never going to get unstuck from our fixation on ourselves unless we stop long enough to ask the hard questions of life. Like, what's the meaning of life? And to break ourselves out of the ordinary pressures of life. So that's point one. Secondly, what's the second thing we need? The second thing we need that Moses needs to get unstuck from his inadequacies There's a proper perspective on who God is. And boy, do we need that too. So at the end of verse 4, God says, Moses, Moses. Moses says, here I am. God says, do not come any closer. He says, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So God starts speaking to Moses from this bush, right? The bush itself is, is mind-boggling, but now this bush is speaking to you, and it's God. He suddenly realizes who this God is, too. In fact, he realizes this is the God he actually believes in. 
He realizes, if you read uh, chapter 2, as he's in Egypt, that he's actually not an Egyptian, even though he was raised by one, that he's a Hebrew. And he learns of the God of his fathers until he believes in this God, but he's never encountered him until this point. This is the God he believes in. In fact, it's interesting that the first statement is, I'm the God of your father, singular. Other times in this chapter and the next, when it kind of repeats this same phrase, it's fathers is plural. God's saying, I'm the God of your dad, your own dad. But Moses also learns that God's a holy God and a fiery God. He speaks to Moses out of the fire and suddenly he's afraid. What is fire? You know, that fire analogy of God is sort of riddled all throughout the Bible. Fire is both beautiful and dangerous, right? It's beautiful. You almost can't look away, but it's also dangerous. Fire reminds us of God's holiness, of his power, of his purity, of his glory. And let me tell you, having a fiery God is a good thing. It's a really good thing. We should like that about God. Why is that? Because fire means I am who I am. Fire means I am who I am not. I am what you want me to be. So if you look later on down in in chapter 3, if you skip down to look at verses 13 and 14, Moses basically asks God, what's your name? He's sort of, I'm skipping some stuff, I'll come back to it. But Moses basically says to God, what is your name? And God says, I am who I am. He doesn't say this. He doesn't say, I am what you want. I'm just whatever you want. See, I am who I am tells us that God's a fiery God. If he said, I am what you want, he'd be a clay God, wouldn't he? He'd be a clay God. He'd just be a God that we could poke or twist or shape into whatever we wanted God to look like. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like, wouldn't that be really great, right, if we could take God and sort of shape him into whoever we wanted him to be? We never do that, do we? You know, in fact, in our, just in our culture today, in our consumeristic culture, it's sort of what we're all trained to do, right? Like, everything can be customized to us. Everything can be specialized the way we want it. We can have it our way when we go to Burger King. But with God, we, we, we approach him the same way, and we shouldn't. Many of us act this way, and so this is what we say. We say, well, I, don't know. I just don't know if I can believe in the God of the Bible. I believe in this aspect and this aspect. I believe that God is a loving God, but I just can't believe in a God who would, who would punish sin or who would send someone to hell. I reject that kind of God. That seems too harsh. Or maybe you've heard someone say this before. I believe in the God of the New Testament, but I do not believe in the God of the Old Testament. I'll say yes to God on this and this and this, but I'll say no to God on these things. But you know what? That should absolutely terrify you. That should absolutely terrify you. Why? Because a clay God wouldn't be a God at all. In fact, if you have a clay God, and if you know someone, or if you say that yourself, that God isn't really the God. You, the person who's shaping that God, or poking that God, or twisting that God, you're the one who's ultimately in control, right? You're the one who's making the decisions. You're the one who's God. You're acting as your own God. You're still stuck on yourself. You're not buying into a God at all. You sort of maybe give lip service to this God of the Bible, but you're ultimately the one in control. Now notice this too, when God says in verse 14, I am who I am, two times in the Hebrew language, this is originally written in Hebrew, and I don't know Hebrew, but I I can reference the reference books. I can look this up. Two times in Hebrew, it's simply the verb to be. To be. What's God saying? He actually really isn't even answering Moses' question of his name. He's sort of just saying, Moses, I'm just the God who is. I just am. The word to be. I just am. I am the God who is. I always have been and I always will be. And that is way too much for our human minds to fathom. We just, we can't go there. God has always, he's been here forever. What? God, 
we can't comprehend it. God says, I just am. See, you need a real God. You need a real God, not just some God you form in your mind. And the real God is a fiery God. He's just and he's powerful and he's also good. You know, if you look at the sequence here even, he says to Moses, take off your sandals because the place where you're standing is holy ground and I am a holy God. And yet, right after that, look at verses 7 through 10. This is what the Lord said. This is why he comes down. He comes down to say, I've heard the cry of my people. I've, I've seen the misery of my people. I've heard their cries and I'm concerned about them. He says, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. So yeah, he's a holy God. He's absolutely holy. But he's also caring. He's the God that sees this oppression and goes, that's wrong. That's bad and it shouldn't be that way. He's a God who's caring and loving. And maybe you go, well, still, I'm, there's just some things about God that I, I don't agree with. You need a proper perspective. Let me put it this way. Only a real God could disagree with you. Only a real God could disagree with you. If you don't believe in a God who can disagree with you, it's not a real God. That's a self-made God. Have you ever thought about that before? In real relationships, the other person in a real relationship always has the freedom to disagree with you, don't they? They always have the freedom to disagree with you, to contradict you. See, we like to, we like to picture God as a genie in a bottle who is at our every beck and call, our every wish. He's a genie God. He's a Stepford God. You ever seen that movie, The Stepford Wives? These guys, I think, in Stepford, Connecticut, somehow I, I turn their wives into robots, and they have these robot wives walking around, and they sort of are at their every whim. That's not the real God. Is that your view of God? It's a Stepford God. It's a robot God. Or let me put it like this. Um, what if I came to you and I said, look, we're friends. I know you well, and we're really, we're really good friends. But when I think of you, I like to think of you as a controlling, domineering person. Sorry, this is how I think of you. And in fact, I like to tell other people that you're controlling and domineering too. And they go, what? Like, that's not me. I don't think, that's not me. Like, how, how, how dare you? And you go, oh, I'm sorry. That's, I'm sorry. That's just the way I think about you. What would they say, right? They'd go friendship over then. That's not me. You can't make God into someone he's not. And if you do that into a real relationship, it just does, there's no relationship there, right? And you can't approach God like a clay God. It's very good that we have a fiery God. If you want to get unstuck, you have to have a proper perspective on who he is. Thirdly, a powerful master. We can get unstuck in the presence of a powerful master. This is pretty closely tied to the point I just wrapped up, but God is, um, this is different. God is both absolutely holy and loving, but he's also powerful, and there's a difference there. He has power. So you can read about um, a prophet or certain spiritual leaders maybe in the past or a spiritual guru or something. There's lots of maybe spiritual people out there, but, but they don't also have power, or at least not the kind of power that we see here, the kind of power that the God of the Bible has. See, always, always, always in the face of power, uh, we just melt. It sort of brings out our inadequacies. As we are, are confronted with anything or anybody that's truly powerful, we just sort of bring, we just feel really small, right? You go to the Grand Canyon or you go to Niagara Falls, you just feel small. See, the context here, before I get to chapter four and point this out, look with me real quick at verse eight of chapter three. So I mentioned this already. God says, I have come down to rescue my people from the hand of the Egyptians. But then verse 10, he gives Moses this grand vision. He says, I have come down to do it. And yet Moses, verse 10, now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh, Moses, to bring my people out. This grand vision. And Moses replies with this little tiny vision. 
God, who, who am I? Who am I? I am insignificant. I am inadequate. Who am I? See, God, he's so powerful. God uses us to do his will. That should boggle our minds. God uses us, his creation, to do his will. And Moses even says to him, or God says to Moses, I will be with you. I have your back. But so we go over to chapter 4, and Moses is like, I'm not so sure. Moses goes, okay, I should, be, uh, I should be into this. You're speaking to me from a bush, for crying out loud. And the bush is on fire, and it's not consumed. And yet Moses goes, I don't know that you have my back. He's still doubting, right? And so verse 1, he says, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? I know what you just said, but, but what if they don't believe me? And so God shows him some power, shows him his power in some pretty obvious ways. Uh, I'm going to summarize here a little bit. He basically says, Moses, what's that in your hand? Verse 2, a staff. And so the Lord said, throw it on the ground. And Moses throws it on the ground and it turns into a snake, right? The moment this, this stick hits the ground, I imagine a king cobra, right? Something terrifying. It says Moses ran from it. Ah, I mean, I would just be spooked. And then he goes, pick up the snake, grab it by the tail, turns back into a staff in his hand. That's a powerful God. That is power right there. He goes, here's my second one, Moses. Take your hand, put it into your cloak. This is verse 6. He brings it out, it's just full of disease. In an instant, he puts it in his cloak, it's just covered with leprosy, right? How terrifying would that be? He goes, no, no, I'll reverse it. Put it back in your cloak, pulls it out, it's restored. And he goes, I've got more. If they won't believe the first two signs, I'll have you take water from the Nile and it'll turn into blood. Um, God says, I have other options. And he does, doesn't he? he? He needs a lot of them. We have a powerful master. And yet after all those, both of those signs, yet still Moses still doubts himself. He still says, oh Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Isn't that just like us? We're so prone to bring out the excuses. God, I know you're powerful. I know you, you've made the entire universe and you have plans for me. And you want to use me to reach a lost and hurting world. God, you want, you want to use me to be, be a pivotal experience for somebody else. And yet we go, this is our favorite one, just, I can't. I can't, not me, God, I can't. I'm not gifted. I don't know what to say. They don't need me. There's plenty of other people that you're going to use, God. They don't need me. Or it's just not the right time. I love that. I, I use that one all the time. It's not the right time. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. And we could come up with an excuse after excuse. And, and you know, sometimes those are, those are legitimate. Most of the time, they're excuses. They're excuses. God has our back. And so God replies to Moses in verse 11, says, who gave man his mouth? He's a powerful master. Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight and makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God, God's given us everything. I can't. Moses, or God says, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. With God, you can do it. With God, you can do his will. With God, why not you? He has no other plan. There is nobody else. With God, why not you? See, we need a real God, and we have a real God. He's a powerful master. He's not just powerful. He's ours. He's our master. He's our Lord. And when we see him for who he really is, we get unstuck from our obsession with ourselves. Finally, point four, a personal companion. The final thing we need in order to get unstuck is help. We need some help. We all do. And it's not a thing. We don't need a thing. We really need a person. And in fact, near the end of today's passage, right after where I, Moses finally again just says, Lord, please send somebody else to do it. Huh, please send someone else to do it. 
And God doesn't really like that answer, but he basically says, okay, I'll give you a companion. I'll summon you your brother Aaron. He can speak well. And you two can tackle this together. Maybe you need a companion. You need not just God, and I'll get to that in a second, but you need an actual human person. You need a trusted friend. You need an accountability partner. Maybe you are going through something right now in life and you need to seek professional counseling. You need a counselor. You need to get involved in a small group. Tons of you are already involved in a small group. But this is what we need. We go to small groups sometimes and we put on our pretty happy face. We put on a mask every time because it's, you got to keep up with the Joneses, right? So I'm fine and everything's perfect. We need to open up to our small group and be real and say, I, this is the angst. This is what's going on inside of me and I have to be real with somebody about this. But who's that person for you? But no, we're not quite done because ultimately we do need a person, but we do also need God. We need a savior, not just a friend. We need a savior and we need him to be a personal companion, not just a God who's far away, who's removed, who's too holy for us. But how do we get him? How do we get him, especially because he is a fiery God? What if he does that to us? What if something, what if, what, if he do, what if he does something to us? See, back at the beginning of the passage, when it talks about the burning bush in verse 2, um, there's an angel, right? Did you catch that? There's an, um, actually, no, I'm sorry. Did I say an angel? Uh, it's the angel of the Lord. There's a difference in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. There's, an, there's a difference between an angel of the Lord, like Gabriel or Michael that are named at times, There's a difference between an angel and the angel of the Lord. In the Old Testament, there's this very mysterious figure that's called the angel of the Lord. And in in, uh, verse 2 of chapter 3, it says, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. But then, check this out. Verse 4, you go, it says, God called to him from within the bush. Well, that's, I mean, did you notice that earlier when I read it? Like, well, which is it? That looks kind of like an error to me. Is it God or is it the angel? What's going on? No, it's not an error, right? Here's the answer. The Lord spoke through the angel. The Lord spoke through the angel. He does this all the time in the Old Testament. The angel was a mediator between God and Moses. The angel was a mediator. This mysterious figure, the angel of the Lord, was a mediator, and he was in in the midst of the fire, the angel was. He was right there. It says, from within the bush. He was in the midst of the fire. What does that remind us of? What should that remind us of? You see, all through the Old Testament, God says, the, way, the only way that you can live with me, a holy God, and have a personal relationship with me is if someone substitutes and takes your place, takes your punishment for you. We read in, in Romans 6, uh, 23, that the wages of sin is death. The Bible says the penalty, the wages of sin is death. That's the penalty for sin. And so someone or something has to die to cover your sin if you want to live. And so over and over and over again in the Old Testament, sacrifices were thrown into the fire, right? The fire of God's holiness. So when you were guilty, you made a sacrifice and you received forgiveness, but you would kill a lamb or a bull and it was slain and it was put into the fire. But the New Testament tells us why, right? It tells us why. Because there was one, there was one who went in and as a final sacrifice threw himself into the fire and he was consumed so that we don't have to be because of our sin. He was consumed. He took our punishment. And so because Jesus Christ was consumed by the holy wrath of God, we're, we're set free. We're pulled out. We're unstuck. Because he was consumed in our place. We're able to become burning bushes ourselves, right? We can become a light to other people that they turn aside to see. That's what happened to Moses. Moses, 
He became a burning bush. He went on, Moses changed the world. Check this out real quick. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, as Stephen is preaching to this crowd, he, he tells Moses' story. And he says this in Acts chapter 7, verse 22. He says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful, Moses was, in speech and in action. Well, that's a different, that's a different story than what Moses saw himself, than how Moses saw himself. See, Moses, he didn't even understand it completely, I bet, at the time. But we do. We can. Because Christ, he's made a way for us. He became our sacrifice. He was in the fire so that we don't ever have to go into that. And we can have life, confident, eternal life with God. Look real quick with me at this. Paul says to the the Christians in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 6, he writes this, Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence, it, what? it comes from God. He's made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Confidence, competence, in the Spirit of God. That's, what we, that's how we get unstuck. That's what God gives us when we look to Christ and when we see what he's done on our behalf because of what the Son of God has done and because of what the Spirit of God can do in you. We can do it. And you can become a burning bush, like I said. People will turn aside and go, there's something different about you. There's something different about that guy. And then you can explain. You you can explain to them how you've been changed. And you can explain to them their pivotal experience. And you can give them a proper perspective on who God is. And you can tell them that you have a powerful master and a personal companion who loved you enough to take the fire for you so that you could know God and you'll change the world. What's the task that God is giving you today, this morning? Maybe this sermon is your pivotal experience. What's the vision that God is giving you? With God, why not you? And write that down and put that on your desk or something this week or above the sink. With God, why not you? Maybe you're God's only plan. And he's given that responsibility to you. He wants to pull you out of whatever rut you're into and he wants to use you to accomplish his will. The only question is, will you let him? Let's pray together. Father God, this... uh, this is, so, this is so who we are, God. Every one of us in here, we feel we have inadequacies. We feel inadequate. We feel ill-equipped. We feel ungifted. We feel like exactly what Moses said, God, who am I? God, who am I to do this, your grand vision? And yet God says, I'm going to be with you. God promises us, you say, God, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. We have these promises of God And Lord, you're so powerful and you're so grand. And we God, we need to see you for who you really are. We need to stop shrinking you down and making you some clay God. He's not even really powerful because we're the ones that are shaping you. God, may we see your grandeur. May we see your greatness. And God, may we see the love you have for each one of us, that you yourself were consumed by the fire so that we don't have to be. God, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. And God, thank you for how the spirit of God comes into our lives. It makes us burning bushes. Oh, God, help us. God, help us to be a burning bush to a lost and broken world. God, we need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.